40 days, the flood kept coming on the earth, and as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits. Every living thing that moved on land perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth, and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens had been closed and the rain had stopped falling from the sky. The water receded steadily from the earth. At the end of 150 days, the water had gone down. And on the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The waters continued to recede until the 10th month. And on the first day of the 10th month, the tops of the mountains became visible. After 40 days, Noah opened a window he had made in the ark and sent out a raven. And it kept flying back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground. But the dove could find nowhere to perch because there was water over all the surface of the earth. So it returned to Noah in the ark. He reached out his hand and took the dove and brought it back to himself in the ark. He waited seven more days and again sent out the dove from the ark. When the dove returned to him in the evening, there in his beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. Then Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth. He waited seven more days and sent the dove out again, but this time it did not return to him. By the first day of the third month of Noah's 601st year, the water had dried up from the earth. Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. Then God said to Noah, Come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground, so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it. So Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives, all the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground, and all the birds, everything that moves on the land came out of the ark, one kind after another. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and, taking some of the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures, as I have done. As long as the earth endures, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, will never cease. Brilliant. Uh, thank you, Tim, and thank you, Rob, for reading earlier. Um, so, for uh, those of you who are here who are visiting, or those of you who don't know me, my name is Gareth. I'm uh, one of the student workers here at G2. I've lived in York for four years. Three of those years were a student. 
one of those years was working here at G2, and um, I'm very happy to be able to say that I'm going to be continuing working for another year here. I work with students alongside uh, Tash, and uh, it's quite sad to see all the students have gone home, but uh, there's still a few of us left, and that's really cool to see. Um, today we are continuing our series uh, on beginnings. This is a series where we're looking at several of the really huge and famous stories from the book of Genesis. And today we're looking at what is one of the most famous stories from the entire Bible, um, the story of Noah and the Ark and the Great Flood. Um, now, many of us may well be familiar with this story, but just think, I just think it might be quite helpful if we do a little bit of a recap. So, uh, following on from last week, uh, what Christian spoke about, Christian talked about the fall of man, he talked about Adam and Eve in the garden, and the fall. And several chapters later, we basically seem to find ourselves in a situation where, uh, as mankind has multiplied on the earth, they have become increasingly corrupt and evil. In fact, just before either of these readings, we find out that God says he's actually sorry that he's made them. And um, because of mankind's corruption, God decides that the way he's going to deal with this is he's going to send a massive flood and this is going to kill every living creature. However, there is one man, um, and his name is Noah, who finds favour with God. It says in uh, chapter 6, verse 8, it says, Noah found favour with God. And Noah, who is known as being righteous and blameless amongst his generation, is picked by God and told to build an ark. And this ark is um, 450 feet long um, and 45 feet high. It has three stories, and or three decks rather, and various compartments. And what he's told to do is he's told to build this ark in preparation for this flood and to take with him two of every kind of animal, as well as his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives. Now, what then happens is that for 40 days and 40 nights, it rains, and these waters prevail on the earth for 150 days. The ark eventually comes to rest on Mount Ararat, and Noah firstly sends out a raven, and then a dove. And initially, the dove return, returns, because it can't uh, rest its feet anywhere, but... After the second time, it comes back with an olive branch, and of course that is the symbol of peace we now have, which is a dog with the olive branch in its mouth. And then eventually it goes away, and they realise that the flood water has receded from the earth. And after this, um, God makes a promise to Noah, and he makes a covenant with him and with all mankind that this will never happen again, that he will never again flood the earth. And as a symbol of this, we didn't quite cover that, that happens in chapter 9. As a symbol of this, he shows a rainbow. And that is a symbol of God's covenant that he will never again um, flood the earth. And after that, essentially Noah is told to go out onto the earth and multiply. So Noah and his family are basically given the task of repopulating the earth. Now, as, as we said, this is one of the most popular, well-known, and ubiquitous stories from, I'd say, arguably the entire Bible. It is pretty much a Sunday school classic. If, you've ever, if you ever went to Sunday school, you're almost guaranteed to have done this story numerous times. Um, it's, not, it's also a story, or Noah is a figure, who is 
not only a prophet amongst uh, the Jewish and Christian traditions, but also uh, versions of Noah and the Flood actually appear in both Islamic and Baha'i traditions. They're slightly different versions, but they have their own versions of the Noah narrative. Um, and also, it's a story that is so famous that it has permeated popular culture. So many of you may have seen um, Evan Almighty. Uh, personally, though, I, I'd say the best example of Noah in popular culture would have to be Noah's Island. That was, for me, an absolute classic growing up. I don't know, there's quite a few people here who grew up with Noah's Island. If I say Oiski, you'll say Oiski. Yes, I'm so glad that worked. That could have been awful. Um, and that is how famous this story is. And, and yet, despite its Sunday school popularity, and despite the fact that it has found itself comfortably amongst, in popular culture, it's a potentially very problematic story. When you actually think about it, when you get past the idea of the cute animals lining up to go into the boat, and you stop and think, it's incredibly worrying, it's incredibly scary, this story. Um, this is a story in which God not only wipes out the vast majority of the human race, but he also wipes out the animals. Now, this might seem like an odd statement, but at least humankind was evil. The animals, in theory, no moral accountability, and yet they get wiped out all the creatures, unclean or clean, whether they're crawling on the floor or flying in the sky, they all get wiped out. And it is perhaps unsurprising, therefore, that this has actually then been a controversial story. This is a story which has come under increasing scrutiny and attack over the centuries. Um, and so, um, over, over centuries, as, as different science has developed, people have become more sceptical about the story. Um, this story was actually the subject of the scorn of people like Ricky Gervais. He did a stand-up act in which he basically does what we could describe some kind of mocking expositional exegesis, where he goes through it and mocks it line by line. This is a story that has definitely come under some scrutiny, and as has definitely been a theme of this entire series, this is a story which has attracted some kind of scholarly debate. By now, it has got to a stage where there are several people who have very different ideas about how one should approach or read um, the Genesis narrative, uh, and in particular this of the Flood. Now, um, I, you could, as ever, there are several different um, ones you could go down, but I, I've picked out three specific um, interpretations that people have. Now, I could uh, just give you what I think, um, but that wouldn't be that helpful. I think it's more helpful if we look at what others think and maybe engage with it ourselves. And so if you want to chat about what I think, come and chat to me later. Um, so the first option is that this was a literal global flood. Um, and that is certainly what was, has historically you know, been, been the interpretation. That is that all life was wiped out on the entire earth and all people, therefore, descend from Noah and his family. Um, and uh, in particular, a lot of people involved in creation science have, have used the flood as, as an explanation for fossils. It's that the argument goes that the flood is what caused the spreading out of fossils across the earth. Uh, a second, and I would say increasingly popular viewpoint, is this, this was 
by all means an historical event, but a more localised flood. Um, the writers of Genesis, Moses or uh, potentially, uh, when they were looking at the world, they would have been talking about the known world, and the known world to them would have been the Middle Eastern regions, it would have been the areas of Mesopotamia. And so when they talk about the whole earth, they do mean, they mean a much more local area than we might think of. The third option, and perhaps more controversial interpretation, would be that this is some kind of parabolic legend. That is, it's a symbolic tale which has been appropriated, but actually is still laden with theological truth and divine revelation. Now, we don't have tables today, but we can still do some sort of discussion. So, um, get the next slide up. What I'd really like you to do is, for three, four minutes, just to really engage with which of these three uh, ways of viewing Noah's Ark and the Flood do you find most convincing. But also, the second question is really worth keeping in mind. As we look at this, and we look at the different scholarly interpretations, what impact, if any, does that have, do you think, on the lessons that we learn and the theological truth that we take? from this story. So we take just three, four minutes, find two, three, four people around you and just chat about that, that would be great. Brilliant guys, we just want to bring our conversations to a close. I would really encourage you to uh, keep chewing over that and uh, maybe keep chatting about that afterwards. Um, now, the reason I sort of brought that up is, apart from the fact that it is an area of debate that is quite, um, quite noteworthy, um, and I think it is an interesting question to ask, um, I included the second question very um, deliberately, because although I do think that's an interesting question, and I think it was worth getting it out of our system, I think it's also a potentially distracting conversation in the grand scheme of things. So what I think is most important, as I think has been the case um, both when we looked at creation and the fall, is that first and foremost what we try and do is that we try and understand what God is trying to say to us through his word, through these stories. Um, in this, which is God's story, and Genesis is, if nothing else, it's God's story of how he relates to us as people, what we really need to do is look at that and see what God is trying to say to us, um, not just in a general sense, but also in our lives. What is God trying to say to us here as G2 in 2013 through this, the first book in the Bible, and through this, a really ancient story? Um, the account of the flood reveals sacred, ancient truth about God and how he relates to his people. And that's really what we need to focus on and really uh, lean into. And so there are lots of potential themes um, that you could look into from this. Um, but I'm picking out, in particular, three aspects, three sacred truths which I feel are really important and helpful from this narrative. And the first of that is simply that, as humans we are sinful, we screw up, and that that both offends and hurts God, and in turn, that separates us from him. 
Um, I think what's the most tragic element of this, perhaps more so than the destruction that happens, is this notion which happens in Genesis 6-6 where God says when, that he is sorry that he has made man because of the state that we're in. And when you think about in Genesis 1 where God creates this, create, uh, when God creates the earth and he says that it is good and only five chapters later he's feeling sorry that he's made it. This idea that God creates man in his own image and yet only five chapters later he looks at man and is sorry that he's made him. I think this is a, a really tragic thought. We see in Genesis 6, 11 to 12 that the earth was corrupt and was filled with violence. And I remember when I used to uh, hear this story as a kid, I, I always used just to assume that these guys must have been really evil guys. These must have been terrible beyond anything we know. But then when I read, it says that this, the earth was filled with corruption and violence. I start to think, how much have things changed? How different is the earth now than it was in the days of Noah. It's very easy to step back and think that this must have been a very different world, but I can't help but wonder. You only have to turn on the news. Uh, you only have to listen to a news broadcast to hear plenty of stories about violence and corruption. It seems to be very much alive and well. Both seem to be very much alive and well in our world today. I look at myself I don't even have to look at the news, I just have to look at myself and my own heart to know that there, is, there are so many flaws in the human race. I know how imperfect I am. I know that if I set my own standards for how I should live, I fail to live up to them. How much less then am I able to live up to God's standards? And so it got me thinking, if I was one of the people in this story, and I think this is really helpful to think of this, is if, if we were in this story, who would we be? Would we be Noah or would we be the other people? Because I'm not going to lie, I don't think that apart from Jesus, if God looks at me, he would describe me as blameless amongst my generation. I, I personally, I don't, know, I, I don't think that's modesty. I think that's just probably true, isn't it? So it gets me thinking, maybe if I was around then, I would have been one of the evil and corrupt people who got wiped out. It's a sobering thought, but it's actually worth thinking about. And yet, what is incredible about this story is, actually, it's about a God of second chances. It's about a God of new beginnings. It's about a God who actually is committed to mankind. Because... However, which way you do read this, what is true is that God doesn't completely start. Uh, God doesn't completely wipe out the human race. He doesn't just go oh, give up, forget it. He still remains committed to saving people. He still remains committed to giving people and the whole of creation a second chance. And uh, one theologian, when asked what this story was about, that's how he summed it up. He says. The story of Noah and the Flood is about God being a God of second chances. And so what we see is that this isn't just uh, destruction or decreation. This is a story in which God decides to save the human race through Noah. 
God is unbelievably committed to his created people. And we know that even after the flood, that people don't change completely. People don't suddenly become good. In fact, it's only in chapter 11 when we get the Tower of Babel, which is when all the people try and build up a tower to get to God. And that is, and they can't do it because ultimately we, as on our own, cannot reach God because of our sin, because of our imperfection. We cannot reach God. And we see that in a very literal sense when people try and build a tower to heaven and they can't do it. And that happens after the flood. Um, The New Testament is filled with talking about how we cannot reach God. It says in Romans 3.23, all have fallen short, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And yet despite this, despite our imperfections, despite the fact that on our own we cannot reach God, what we see in this story is that God is committed to his people. God is committed to his creation. God is committed to humans. And in this story, what we see is God taking Noah and asking him to build the ark. And through Noah, we see the preservation of the human race. And not only that, we see the second chance of the human race. And for me, when I, when I, look, when I look at this story, the thing that I think of more than anything is Jesus. Because this, for me, foreshadows the fact that God was committed to the human race despite the fact that we turn away from him, despite the fact that we by ourselves cannot get to know him, that we by ourselves are flawed and imperfect. And in the same way that God was committed to rescuing the human race through Noah, he was committed to rescuing the human race through Jesus. As great as the story of Noah is, what, we should, what, what is really great to do is look at how it points forward to how 2,000 years ago, God decided to become man. As it says in John 1, the word God became flesh. He decided to dwell amongst us. He decided to become one of us. All so that he could die on the cross so that we could come to know him. So that all this evil and corruption which existed then and which exists now So that all of that could be cleansed away. When Jesus died on the cross, it was like a far more perfect and complete version of the flood. It was a way of giving the human race a second chance. Because God is a God of second chances. And just as he showed his commitment to us as people in the days of Noah, so he did again 2,000 years ago when he came to earth to die for us, so that we might come to know him, that he might be the sacrifice for our sins, so that his blood might wash us free of our sin, and so that we, as a people, might have a second chance. And the third thing is that we see in this story, which again goes back to that, is that the way in which we can come to know God because of his grace, is through faith. And we've talked about that a lot in Jesus recently in our series on Galatians, that our relationship with God can never be about our works, but rather through our faith in him and what he's done. And when I was reading through this story again and again and again, I kept 
thinking one thing that's incredible about Noah, which is unique about Noah compared to almost any other biblical figure or almost anyone else I, I, I know. You read this story, Noah doesn't say anything. Noah doesn't speak once. I've never thought about that before, but I was reading through it, and I was just like, yeah, Noah doesn't say... Now, Noah does say one thing a chapter later um, to his son, but if anyone knows what happens there, won't go into that. Um, but he says nothing. All he does is listen and obey what God asks him to do. God tells him to build an ark. He tells him when in the middle of a, of a dry land, he goes, build an ark 450 feet long out of gopher wood and take all the animals and, and, and put them in it and wait for it to rain. And I can imagine that that must have seemed like a pretty odd instruction. And yet, he's faithful. And you know, although it says that um, Noah is blameless in his generation, part of me maybe thinks that he wasn't necessarily perfect. But the fact is, is just like we talked about how Abraham was made righteous through faith, it seems as if it may well be that Noah was made righteous through his faith in God. Not because he was perfect, but because he had faith. And if you go to um, Hebrews 11, the great passage on faith, Noah is listed amongst other Old Testament figures as being great heroes of faith because when God gave him the command to do what he needed to do, he did it. He didn't say anything, he just did what God wanted him to do. Through grace, we can have a relationship with God through faith. And this is what we see with Noah. And what's even more incredible here is that we see that not only is God committed to saving Noah because of his faith, but because of Noah's faith, the human race could go on, the human race could continue. And so, in doing so, God saved all humans through Noah. And it was through Noah's faith that that happened. And so what this shows me as well is that God is in the business not just of giving second chances, but of using people like you and me, imperfect people. He's in the business of using us to save other people. He's in the business of using us to do his will. So although this can seem like such a scary story and, and, and such a problematic story, it's actually a story of enduring love and a story of God's commitment to his people and of God's commitment to giving us as people a second chance. And there might be, and I, I, I don't know about you, but I, I know that I need a second chance. I by myself... I, I screw up all the time and I need God's forgiveness and I need that forgiveness.